Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, with the latest installment of the Housing Wire Daily Podcast, where I get to talk to editors and reporters about the most compelling stories and sources they're covering. Today, my guest is senior real estate reporter Matt Blake, and we'll be discussing cover letters to sellers, what Compass is up to, and more. But first, a word from our sponsor. Since 2015, Finance of America Mortgage and their skilled, award-winning mortgage advisors have helped over 450,000 customers, closing more than $134 billion in loan volume. Licensed in all 50 states, plus Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, Finance of America Mortgage is backed by best-in-class lending technology and a wide range of innovative mortgage products that can help turn any borrower into a customer for life. Want to join an award-winning team and evaluate your business? Visit www.joinfamtoday.com forward slash housing wire to learn more. Finance of America Mortgage LLC is licensed nationwide. Equal housing opportunity. NMLS ID number 1771. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Equal opportunity employer. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's always great to catch up on what's going on in the real estate beat. Um, So one of the first things I wanted to talk about was your recent story about love letters in Oregon. And love letters is what the, you know, official term is, uh, I think, in the different laws going around. We've called them in the past, we've called them cover letters. So basically the, you know, what, what a potential buyer writes to a seller to convince them um, that they should sell to them when they have multiple bids. So maybe you can give us a little background on this and and what the latest is. Sure. So the background on this is that we have love letters or cover letters have existed for a long time, where basically if there's a home, like you said, where there's uh, multiple bidders, usually you sometimes write a letter to the home seller as the potential home buyer saying like, oh man, you know, I love your yard. Um, I love gardening. I really want to use your yard to garden or wow, what a great family area. You know, I'm a family person myself. Um, my partner and I, you know, we have two children. We want to move in, but be because of that, like something that sort of like personalizes your experience, but it's um, a fine line between, I guess, sort of like innocuous correspondence and then like something that could potentially be a violation of the 1968 Fair Housing Act, which basically, you know, says you can't discriminate against like protected classes, like uh, racial minorities, um, any religious discrimination. So for example, if I, the potential home buyer, were to write to you, the home seller, and be like, wow, I would love to um, buy your home. It's it's right by um, a church or, you know, I would love, you know, like, anything like that that sort of um, crosses the line into maybe like ethnic or racial or religious signifiers is basically like, um, you know, could run afoul of a Fair Housing Act violation. And so because of this, basically 
the state of Oregon, they passed a law last year banning all non-customary documents in a transaction between a buyer to a seller. And like a customary document would obviously be like, this is my credit score. This is what the bank is saying about my loan, you know, that kind of thing. So a non-customary document would presumably be one of these informal letters and real estate agents, because they have a fiduciary duty to their buyers, they're usually obligated to pass on these letters to the seller, even if the real estate agent may think in their mind, like, oh man, like I could be getting into hot water here. So what happened then was, is that it becomes law in January, a federal judge in Oregon basically enjoins the law in March because of a lawsuit, a lawsuit by the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is a libertarian law firm. They filed a lawsuit against it saying it's a free speech right violation banning these letters. The judge agrees with them because the judge says the ban of all non-customary documents um, basically, you know, is too broad. Um, what does that mean exactly? Should we be brought, should we be banning, you know, innocuous correspondence about like a love for gardening or something like that? And so, so that's the whole big context. And so what is happening now is that basically the state of Oregon is kind of at an impasse where the lawmaker who wrote the law, um, Mark Meek, who's also a real estate agent, he said he was, you know, he told my colleague, Brooklyn Han, I'm very surprised by this. I don't know, like, why this happened. And, like, I don't know why the ruling happened. He's not sure what he's going to do next. Meanwhile, other states, including the state of Washington, are looking at a more narrowly tailored version of the law. But, um, like, nothing has passed so far. And, I mean, this all seems maybe, like, to the listener a little bit esoteric, but I think if you're listening to this and you're a real estate agent, it is like pretty interesting. I mean, it's because it is something that I think real estate agents that I've talked to deal with all the time. And even like friends I've talked to that are like, you know, potential home buyers. Like I know people who have written, you know, to um, people that are selling a home and saying like, you know, we would love to do like yard work. Like my passion is landscaping. I want to, you know, remodel this home. So this is like a really like everyday issue um, in, in the lives of, of agents and even consumers. So um, it, it bears watching what happens next because, you know, it's not, you know, while these laws are now like on the rocks, like it's not going away whether or not, you know, this could pose a problem for people. I think one of the really interesting things about this is how it would be enforced. How could you ever, how would you know, like who would bring the action and how would they know that there was a letter involved? Because I'm, you know, it's, I don't know, would that mean that the real estate agents involved who both profited from the sale, right? The seller and the buyer who know that there was a, a letter written or maybe the real estate, I mean, I just, are they supposed to self-report that there was a cover letter? Um, Mm-hmm. It seems almost impossible to prove. Like if I'm a, a a home seller and I, you know, then you'd have to prove that it had some sort of effect on me versus maybe they just had a great bid or it seems like super tricky when you think about like in the weed parts of it. Yeah. I think that in some ways, like it's almost like the way the, my understanding of, of how it might be enforced is that basically the real estate agents 
basically are almost like deputized themselves because like if you have a situation like if I'm a really conscientious real estate agent and there are 10 bids for a house I might be in the know enough to know that like my client bid $420,000 for the house whereas um somebody else got the winning bid but they bid you know well I mean if you just see like you know, like that's, that becomes public record. Like you can look on Redfin, like how much a home sells for. So let's, let's say a home sells for $390,000. My client bid uh, $420,000. So something then is like fishy to you as to like why that person won with the lower bid perhaps. So maybe that would be one way it's enforced and you look in to that, you know, an- another way is just sort of like, the you know home seller the like the the listing agent of the home seller sees these letters and like reports these because I do think there's some duty to by the agent like they have a fiduciary duty to their client but if this is a law then they also have like a duty you know to report any fair housing act violation and if there's a law saying this may be a fair housing act violation then they have to report it but yeah i mean it's obviously you know, these are very informal transactions that we're talking about. Like these are very like, you know, like, right. Like, I mean, if you could ban a love letter, but like, if I, you know, am like taking a tour, walking around like the living room of the house and I'm like, oh man, you know, my, you know, my, my son is just, you know, starting, you know, to go to church regularly. It would be great to be a block away from the church, you know, seemingly an innocuous or, or something like, you know, like, like, what is the age range around here? Like, oh, this seems like a pretty Mexican neighborhood, right? It's like tradition, like anything like that, that maybe like come off as like innocuous correspondence could be sort of a non-customary communication. So yeah. Well, and even, even saying something like my son or my wife, like that's a a family, even, you know, you know, having a preference for what the familial status is of someone and whether they're married or not, whether they have kids or not. But then I think about like, uh, to your point, there, there are always ways to get around it and we weren't trying to get around it. But for instance, when we bought a house, uh, one time, my husband is a huge Kansas city chiefs fan and saw that, um, the person that was selling the house was also a huge Kansas City Chief fan because they had all this memorabilia up. He communicated that to the um, to our real estate agent who said it to them kind of like, hey, we'd want to keep the giant. There was a giant lit sign of the Chiefs guy. Like it was hilarious. And yes, we did keep it. Um, but so, I mean, that, you know, did that have a any impact on them choosing us? I have no idea, right? It could have, it could have not, you know, he, he could also be a Kansas city chiefs fan. That's like, no, I'm taking the highest bidder. So we didn't do a love letter, but to your point, there is a lot of communication that goes on informally that, um, you know, and, and I'm fully support. I, I, I would hate to see that, you know, we do anything to undercut the fair housing act. So, you know, definitely not that. Um, I know that it doesn't specifically talk about um, sports teams, but <laughs> I'm just saying like, it seems like a really uh, interesting story. Really glad you're following it so well. Yeah. And I would just add quickly on that. I think, I think kind of your point is sort of the point that the judge is making is that, you know, there is that kind of innocuous communication about, oh, I also like the Kansas City Chiefs and, and that that should not be banned. So.
Really interesting. Um, you know, the, the thing that we know that this is coming up in the last couple of years because of the incredible bidding wars we're seeing in different places where you have not just multiple bids, but like tens of multiple bids. It might be over 20, um, which I thought we were done with in, in at the end of 2020, early 2021. No, we are back mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. Crazy hot market. So this has once again become a, a really hot topic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the inventory just continues to be really low. So you're going to continue to see multiple bidders. Yeah. You know, the next um, story I wanted to talk about was you've done a lot of reporting on Compass. And um, actually, HousingWire and Real Trends have done a lot of reporting on Compass um, altogether. So you re- recently wrote one about Compass agents and, and what they were doing with company stock. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So when Compass got started as a company 10 years ago, there was a lot of talk about kind of how they were going to, you know, give incentives to recruit top agents. And part of those incentives was we're going to give like a commission split, you know, the amount of, you know, a real estate agent gets like 3%, 2.5% of the cost of a home that, that sells. And so the commission split is getting, you know, how much the real estate agent keeps versus the brokerage. And so with Compass, agents were maybe getting, say, 90% instead of 70 or 75% at Caldwell Banker Home Services of America. But then additionally, Compass agents were being recruited with not just the higher commission split, but also, you know, the promise that they would have this like technological platform that other brokerages don't have, but then also they were being recruited with the promise that they would have like stock options. And so that was like one plank of compass stock for agents. The second plank of compass stock for agents is basically this program where you can choose to forego some of your commission in order to kind of invest, trade that in for stock. So it's basically like I am, you know, forgoing immediate, uh, you know, revenue, immediate income for myself, for my own independent contractor business in order to sort of invest in this company. And the short of it is, is that Compass, um, its stock, as I think we talked about a bit the last time I was on um, the podcast, you know, the stock was trading, I think, at about $20 a share um, at this time a year ago, and now it's trading about seven, eight dollars a share. And so the, the, consequently, perhaps, um, not many agents have sort of forgo, like, you know, done away with their immediate commissions in order to invest in Compass stock. Also, in terms of offering new agents, because Compass is still as much as ever, you know, aggressively recruiting, aggressively expanding, going into new markets. Kansas City in the past year, I think there was an announcement they were going into Philadelphia recently. But in terms of offering sort of incentives to agents in these new markets in Kansas City, in Philadelphia, they're not doing these um, stock options as much. And the reason that we know this is because Robert Rufkin, the CEO of Compass, sort of um, just had this kind of one-off remark in the company's earnings call back in February that was like, yeah, only like 10% or so. I forget the precise number off the top of my head, but I think it was 9 or 10% of our agents, 
you know, are getting, um, you know, this, this company stock in incentive on, on top of sort of what else we're offering them. And so basically it's, it shows the point of the story is that it kind of shows the compass is kind of de-emphasizing, you know, this part of the company. And I think, you know, what is the larger context here? What is the point here? I think like the point is, is maybe that kind of firstly, like compass still has to articulate a business model in terms of like how they might, you know, eventually, you know, be a, be a functional business, be a company that operates, you know, with a profit or, or operates with, you know, not just sort of burning through money. And one idea at, at one point was that maybe if agents trade in the commission that Compass is giving them and instead invest in the company, that this could be a way to sort of make Compass, you know, a profitable company. And so right now this hasn't happened. Um, is this the end of the world for Compass? You know, not necessarily, but maybe this is like one avenue the company had to become a more viable business model that's been closed off. And, you know, I guess another larger point maybe to make about it is that, you know, this means, and this isn't even necessarily a criticism of Compass, but this does mean that Compass is sort of more like um, other, again, more like other brokerages. Like this is a way that Compass was differentiating itself at the start with these stocks, but, you know, now they're more like, say, a Realogy that doesn't have these stock programs. Yeah, really good, uh, interesting insights there. You know, so Compass has been in the news, as I said, on Real Trends. So Real Trends is um, one part of the HW family of companies, HW Media, and, you know, they released the um, 2022 Real Trends 500 brokerage rankings. And it showed that, um, that uh, actually Compass uh, became number one in sales volume in uh, on their 2021 numbers. And, and that's the first time since the 90s that Realogy and Home Services America weren't in the top spot by sales volume. So that's, you know, they measure it by different things, but Compass is top in sales volume. So, you know, interesting to see that. And and Robert Refkin, in an interview with Tracy Velt, the editorial director of Realtrend, said, you know, it's all down to the agents, which, of course, any brokerage is going to say. But, I mean, it, it is a really interesting part of the story of what they're doing and, and the models that they're, that, that they're trying out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they're number one. And that's why, you know, I guess I keep covering them, why, why Tracy you know, covers them because, I mean, they are number one in sales volume in the country. And I think that they've made one of the most aggressive pushes for market share, um, you know, in, in a long time. Like Tracy knows a lot more than I about sort of the the history of brokerage, but it is sort of reminiscent of like, you know, Remax in the 70s and 80s or Keller Williams maybe later on, you know, or, or some of these older companies like Prudential that just like, you know, make a huge push and, and try to see if they can kind of um, become a viable business model in part through just gaining market share. So it was really interesting to see that. And um, yeah, it's it's just fast. It's, you know, it's a fascinating soap opera for agents to track what's going on with Compass all the time. Also, it's just, you know, one of the 
main charges you've had and you've taken up is like looking at the business models of different brokerages, how they make money. And what does that mean as the market's changing so much, as technology is changing so much, as you continue to have disruptors, that's in quotes, disruptors come in mm-hmm. um, from other places, but also among among the brokerages themselves. So tell us what you're, um, what you're focusing on this week and next week or, or who's next as you're looking at different brokerage models. Yeah, towards sort of the work that Tracy and the Real Trends team have been doing, it looks like when you look at those sales volume numbers, like the top 20 or so companies um, in in the country right now, like the top 20 brokerages just by like, you know, the num- not by their revenue, not by their income, but instead by like the number of deals they're doing, transaction size, and also like, you know, this, the size of these transactions, you know, transaction volume, which... Um, you know, you look at these companies and some of them are sort of like more traditional, like Douglas Elliman, which, you know, is a company I'm pretty familiar with that like, um, it's kind of more of a luxury high-end company and they have like maybe more of a traditional full service model. They're very adamant, you know, we're not a tech company. We, you know, we get, you know, we get tech from outside, like, you know, we're a brokerage. Um, But then you have these different like new models. And one of these new models is sort of something that's kind of like Compass in that you're just like giving a total um, almost 100% uh, commission or 100% commission to the real estate agent. And for me, you know, this is still like something I'm learning about. It's still kind of like almost like a riddle to me, like how these companies can do this, can give agents, can say to the agent, like, we're going to take in none of your income. Like, how are they able to then like keep the lights on? And so one particular company that I kind of honed in on was Samson Properties in sort of, um, I think it's, yeah, it's Fairfax County, Virginia, which is, you know, I'm familiar with as sort of a place where there's a lot of wealth, a lot of sort of Um, kind of like uh, federal contractors, you know, a lot of sort of DC area wealth is concentrated there, but they're actually like not a luxury brokerage. They're kind of, you know, really like meat and potatoes place where it's like $300,000, $400,000 homes, which is at the median or below the median um, housing price in like Northern Virginia. And so it turns out they have like an entire 100% um, commission that they're giving agents. And it looks like um, I'm interviewing today, uh, Donnie Sampson, the, um, the founder of Sampson Properties, the CEO of Sampson Properties. But it looks like they're making most of their money um, through Cardinal Title Services, where basically they request their agents go to Cardinal Title Services and, and or they, I should say, uh, they request that their agents ask um, the client to go to Cardinal title services and, and get a title insurance from them. And that that's the way they make money is, is through a partnership with Cardinal title services. I'm not, I don't quite have the full picture, but I guess the, the point right now I would just make, and, and I, I will have the full picture later this week with the story on Samson, but the point right now is just sort of like, they're trying all these different uh, brokerages are trying just all these different models. And a lot of them, I think, are pretty favorable to the agent. I mean, this is, there used to be not so long ago, um, like say, to be a little more precise, say like 20 years ago, there used to be like a a system where like, you know, home services, Caldwell Banker, 
Corcoran, they used to give like 60, 40, 70, 30 uh, commission splits to most people. And that was kind of the sweet spot of like, these are the agents productive enough that they're going to sell a few homes each year. And we're going to get 40, 30% of that home sales. Like if you're like a super duper star agent, if you're like appearing on reality TV, sure. We're going to give you like a 90 and 95% commission split, but we're going to make our money on these sort of like, you know, productive agents who aren't superstars that, that, that are getting like a 60 or 70% split. That whole model has just changed where like, even like sort of your kind of like B plus real estate agent is now getting like a 90% commission split. And again, I'm still like, and, and this isn't, this is like partly me, the skeptical journalist, but I'm also just still learning and wrapping my mind around like, how are these brokerages going to stay in business? How are they being profitable? You know, if they're giving these kinds of splits to agents. You know, it's something we're always looking at on the mortgage side, on the real estate side is like, um, how are, how are companies adjusting and changing to the constantly shifting market conditions? And also, you know, the market conditions of what agents expect or what, um, LOs expect or what, mm-hmm. you know, um, and also competing for the best ones. How do you, how do you create a business that people want to work for that has a great reputation among the people that you want to recruit? So, um, we'll be really interested to see what, uh, your further reporting on Samson. That's been, uh, they've been great about getting back to you and wanting to, uh, let you know more about their business yep. model and really interesting to look at the innovative, uh, things that different brokerages are doing. Um, So Matt, thanks for being on as always. I know that uh, people can go to um, housingwire.com to find you. They can also go to Real Trends. I would also point our audience to the uh, Real Trends 500 to look at the different ways that they're slicing and dicing who who are the top brokerages, the top agents. Um, It's really interesting and it's just continuing to, we we continue to put out um, more stories based on the data um, the deep dive data that we that Real Trends has been doing for a couple of decades, so it's it's um, you know very accurate and great to get insights from. So Matt, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sarah. Thanks for having me. According to a recent article on the Great Resignation by MIT Sloan Management Review, more than 40% of all employees were thinking about leaving their jobs at the beginning of 2021, and that figure only grew as the year went on. So how are leaders finding ways to retain valued employees? Or maybe you're even asking these questions as a leader yourself. Step one to addressing this, empowering team members to take ownership of their professional growth. This is why we've invited leadership coach and author Renee Rodriguez to join us for this HV Plus virtual masterclass. Think of this class as a one-stop shop on what you need to know to take your leadership to the next level. Go to housingwire.com to learn more and register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.